0: Hello? Hello, is this Dr. Cahoon? Yes, Yeah, speaking. Hi, how are you? This is Brian Platt. Yeah. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. Um, Good. Yeah. I wanted to thank you for sitting down with me today. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to give a little background as to how I got in touch with you. I think I, um, I reached out over email and, and gave you a little background there, but just wanted to do it yep. here as well. Um, so, yeah. So, after the destruction of Hurricane Florence. Um, I kept reading a lot about these issues that not only impacted, um, you know, the actual um, land and houses in the area, but also our water supply. Um, yeah. Yeah. As a new resident to Wilmington, um, I started getting concerned and frustrated. Um, there's power plants depositing coal ash. Um, you yeah. overflowing pig farms. Um, right. You have Chemex, which is this. Um, you know, I believe new chemical from about 2009 that is very similar to other chemicals that uh, you know cause cancer. Um, yeah, and although yeah, this hasn't been...
1: and chemors, yeah. exactly,
0: um, yeah, it's right. supposed to replace mm-hmm. another um, known carcinogenic um, yep. chemical called PFOA.
1: C8. Yeah, C8, yeah PFOA, yeah, and fluorooctanoic acid. Yeah,
0: and and reading reading about all this um, is definitely frustrating. Uh, but the name I kept hearing, uh, reading about that was coming up again and again of someone who was alerting the public um, and really trying to fight back against these issues was yours, Dr. Larry Cahoon of yeah. UNCW, um, <laughs> which is great. So thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you for fighting the yeah, good fight. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about my new home. So I was wondering if you could, you All know, right. help with, you know, start with a little background as to. Who you yeah, are sure, and, sure. and everything. And then we'll right. jump into some of these questions about the, um, you know, the water okay. supply and the issues.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's fine. Um, well, I've been at UNCW for quite a long time. This is my 37th year. Um, and, I, you know, my training was in biological oceanography, and I still do some of that. I, I uh, teach a course, as I think you're aware, in biological oceanography at the graduate level. And I'm teaching an undergraduate course right now on limnology, which is study of freshwater systems. Right. Um, basically, I study aquatic ecosystems. Um, and so, you know, over the years, I've become familiar with a number of the uh, water quality challenges that you find out there, and especially locally, because that's where you learn about these things. And so... <clears throat> Some of my research has to do with water quality issues. Uh, My primary interest has always been in uh, the the lower parts of the food chain, uh, primary producers, uh, zooplankton and grazers and so forth. So I've always been interested in how they uh, function in those systems. And a lot of my basic research has been on that kind of stuff. Uh, but the water quality stuff's interesting, you know, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, one is that you know, obviously people care about it a great deal, which they should. Oh, yeah. So uh, not, not hard to find an audience. And, uh, of course, uh, sometimes there's funding available for that kind of work. Sometimes uh, that's tough, but <clears throat> that's true of research across the board. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, research funding's hard to get. Um, it, you know, I've, I've been in the business a long time and it, it got tougher about the time I got into it, which, you know, it's like, oh crap. Um, but lately the last, uh, you know, since the, the great recession, it's really gotten difficult. Uh, it's been a lot of funding cuts, uh, for research efforts and that sort of thing. So, Interesting. um, yeah, we're, we're struggling a bit to keep ourselves up, but, you know, my colleagues are doing very well overall. Um, I've managed to stay funded enough over the years to keep doing things that I think are important. So um, anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's got to be pretty frustrating. Uh,
1: it depends. The um, th- th- there are some grants that I'm glad I never got. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, It sounds bizarre, but, you know, it's like, yeah that was going to be real painful to have to do all that work.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> and there are
1: other grants I really wish I had gotten. And, and, you know, and then, you know, I did get quite a few and, you know, I was glad I got them. So, um, you know, it, 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 it all kind of works out in the end. Yeah, uh, one yeah. of the things that, that we do is, you know, we try to stay very flexible. Um, and, you know, if I don't get something funded the first go round, I may come back and try it again some other way. To me, the interesting thing is the ideas. Um, you know, it's not about the money. The money's a means. And uh, you get a chance to do the work, and however, that happens. And it's like, oh, cool. Look what we learned. Yeah. And you quite often learn things you never expected. You bump into things, you know, you, you come into a research project with a set of hypotheses about how you think things work. And then you get surprised to find out that your ideas were wrong. Which happens a lot, uh, but then you realize, oh, so it wasn't what I expected. It's more interesting than that.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's probably you know a little bit yeah. of a blessing in disguise when you. When yeah,
1: right. So you know you 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 go into the research enterprise with the understanding that you're likely to, as as often as not to be wrong in your initial uh, predictions about what you would find. I mean, it would get kind of boring after a while if every time you went out and did an experiment, it turned out exactly the way you expected. It's like, hey, I've got this knocked, you know.
0: Do you have an example um, of when that happened and that worked out in your favor where you had this hypothesis?
1: Um, and... Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, geez. Let me think about that.
0: That's all right.
1: Yeah, it's 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 it's, you know, <laughs> evening and I'm tired and frazzled.
0: Quite all right. We can come back um, to that if you want to.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, um, so well, yeah. you had a set of questions.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and pretty much starting off, I'm going to come off pretty hot with the questions and, and just yep. talking about, you know, from the chemor's cocktails of chemicals to the, the heavy residue of coal ash plants, which can have yeah. you know, heavy metals of arsenic and, and, and selenium and, uh, you know, mercury, um, yeah. to the, um, you know, over flooding pig farm lagoons, which if people aren't familiar, they're pretty much open air. Um, you know, pig waste, open deals. Yeah, I've done
1: a lot of work on those. Yeah, I saw
0: a picture of you standing right next to one, uh, which I think is very brave. The more I read about it, Um, the pink in color, they're they're really close. Well,
1: and there, you know, that's an example of how sometimes you get surprised. Right. Um, The lagoons that, that, you know, very few people get that close to a hog waste lagoon. And I've had a chance to get near, you know, a couple you know, several of them.
0: Uh, You can't visit
1: more than one a day for biosecurity reasons. But uh, there was a hog farmer in Pender County invited me up to his place. And he said, uh, I wanted to meet the devil himself. He'd heard about me and thought I was, you know, the devil. But he came up, introduced himself, and we, you know, we got along. And he invited me to his place and, and said, you know, go ahead and sample. He said, if you see anything wrong, tell me. I want to know. And I said, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to call the authorities on you. Uh, but he had a nice pink lagoon. And uh, yeah. they're not all pink, by the way. Uh, the pink color derives from bacteria that grow up in those lagoons under certain condition. And those bacteria are actually soil bacteria mm. that occur naturally. If you manage a lagoon properly... You get this pink color because those bacteria dominate that lagoon, and they basically uh, digest the the swine waste oh, wow. pretty efficiently, and they control the odor. Um, so when you see a pink or you know pinkish lagoon, it's functioning properly. Wow. At least in terms of, of what's going on with those bacteria and the waste, if a lagoon is overloaded. If there's not enough volume of liquid in it, or if it's getting too much waste, it'll turn black. Mm -hmm. And the black ones are the ones that really stink for a long way off, okay? Yeah. Um, The pink ones, now, okay, you walk up to one of those and, uh, you know, it's not uh, roses and and, uh, daffodils, you know, you don't get that flowery smell, but the odor is far far less impressive than you would guess. Yeah. So that was one of the surprises. You know, I uh, this this particular fellow's lagoon was pink. Uh, and I said to him, how do you make it do that? And he said, I designed it to do that. Wow. And I go, oh, okay. And what he did, it turns out that it's a matter of um, enough volume of liquid in the lagoon compared to the amount of waste being put in. If you do that right, you get a pink lagoon, which does not smell that bad. And he said, I wanted my lagoon not to smell bad. He said, you know, I live you know, a quarter mile away. There's a high school uh, a mile downwind of me. I said, I did not want this to stink. And sure enough, if you didn't know there was a hog lagoon there, you wouldn't you would not be able to smell it. Wow. OK.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: you... And, and wow. that was impressive. Yeah. Um now, about half of them, unfortunately, are black, and about half are pink to some degree.
0: So they leave it up to uh, the, the bacteria are farmer. there. Huh? They, sorry, they leave it up to the, the farmer? Like there's no standard of... Uh,
1: there are guidelines yeah. for lagoon construction and management. Now, the construction of a lagoon is supposed to ensure that it meets the guidelines. Now, okay. one of the things you learn in the business is you, you dive into... You know the the guidelines and all of that versus the the practice on the ground. And one of the things I found was that there's there's no enforcement for making a lagoon uh, stay pink. Uh, they tend to pink up in the summer because those bacteria like it when it's hot. Uh, on the other hand, um, the the trick is to maintain enough volume in a lagoon, right? Um, the state agencies advise the farmers spray down your lagoon. in other words, spray the liquid down, spray it out uh, on the ground you know in your, your spray fields. Yeah, so that, that you bring the level of the lagoon down in late summer when it's hurricane season. And so what's happening is that the farmers are being told to reduce the treatment volume in their lagoons because of the fear of hurricanes which obviously is a concern, right?
0: Right, yeah, for sure.
1: So what's happening is that they're spraying down the volume, and thereby uh, they're creating conditions that make it harder to treat that waste properly and reduce the odor problem. Uh, A lagoon at lower level is, uh, you know, when you draw down the the liquid level, it's still receiving the same amount of waste. It's overloaded. It's going to stink.
0: Yeah. So it's not
1: surprising that we get that problem late in the summer.
0: And and doesn't spraying it alone, doesn't that influence, doesn't that affect the the air quality of the people who live around it, like I've read people have Uh, That's true. Now, it depends
1: on, again, do they follow the rules? Sure. Um, You know, there have been a couple of legal cases, uh, civil suits in federal court uh, this past summer, where uh, collections of neighbors were suing Smithfield. Yeah over the the practices of some of their uh, producers. And in some cases, it was pretty egregious. I mean, they were spraying stuff so close to the property line that there was no way that spray drift was going to stay confined on their property, It was going to cross property lines. There were some really awful situations where the neighbors were basically being abused. And I think after the first case, Smithfield actually terminated their contract with the producer who was sued. Uh, They lost the case, but they they actually, you know, terminated the contract, put that guy out of business because he broke their own rules. He wasn't following their rules. Um, You know, they don't want to put themselves in a position to be sued easily. Right. And, yeah, they monkey with the system. And I'm not defending the industry, but, you know, they have a certain amount of self-interest involved here in in not driving the neighbors bat crazy enough to go sew them. Sure. Um, in some cases, there have been, you know, outright abusive practices where uh, the producers, you know, just didn't give a rat's ass about the rights of their neighbors and, and basically abused them, and they got sued for it and you know that's what happens um you know i don't want to get into the politics that derive from that the state legislature passed another
0: Mm -hmm.
1: piece of legislation yada 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 but uh you know this this is a system that can be abused it typically winds up being a, a relatively small number of bad operators yeah um I've I've talked to the industry guys for over 20 years on and off, and, and, you know, they're business people. Uh, Most of them get it that, you know, when you screw up, everybody looks bad. Um, Again, I'm I'm not defending them per se. I think some of the standard practices are like, you know, gee, uh, this is not really a good deal. Um, I mean, I've done as much as anyone to document those some of the things that I think are are potentially very serious problems, nutrient overloading, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But what you find making the headlines is when a relatively small portion really screw up. Um, That's what gets the notice in the newspaper. To me, the interesting things are, you know, when we ran the math and did all of the extensive calculations, we found out that the animal production industries collectively – uh, swine being the leading one for quite a while, yeah. poultry, turkeys, and so on, they're importing an, an enormous amount of, of animal feed, corn and soybeans, most of it, and some other stuff. And most of that stays here in the form of animal waste, carcasses, and whatnot. So North Carolina is importing the nutrients in that feed stuff. And we're talking you know, millions of tons of feed being brought in per year. The vast majority of the nitrogen and phosphorus in that feed stay here as waste. Those are new nutrients. They weren't here before, and they're here now. And nutrients stimulate algae blooms, things like that. That was one of the original questions that I poked into with the swine business. And, you know, I look at the entire set of animal industries because you have to. Uh, You can't say, well, it's all about swine. Yeah, it's not yeah. the poultry guys are involved too.
0: But the swine is definitely um, the dirtiest right I mean that's the one I've, I've read about the most so they're, they're Swine more yeah issues.
1: they're the ones who catch um, they, they catch most of the attention. They oh, yeah. use the you know the, the lagoon method for waste disposal. Poultry gets less attention in part because they don't use lagoons. Uh, they use dry litter as they call it. Uh, basically they put straw in the, the hen houses. And when they take a crop of chickens out to slaughter, uh, they bulldoze all that stuff out and let it pile up on the ground and cure for a while, and then they land apply it. Um, the, one of the big differences is that the swine operations are easy to to locate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because you know, number one, they have a lagoon, but they need a permit for that. The poultry operations don't need a Clean Water Act permit. And so it's very difficult to figure out where they are. I mean, you can go up and Google earth and and look at imagery and figure out that all of those uh, long barns that they create that do not have a lagoon associated with them must be a poultry operation, but you don't know if it's chickens or turkeys.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
1: And they're not required to have the kind of permitting that swine are. So, the permitting requirement allows us to go into public databases and figure out exactly where the swine farms are, right. how big they are, et cetera, et cetera. And I've done that. I've gone into those databases. I know a lot about those guys.
0: <laughs> so,
1: uh, the poultry operations, on the other hand, very difficult to get information about them. Right. Uh, it can be done, but it's kind of a brute force GIS type exercise, and there's no guarantee that you nailed it. Well, um, with so uh, go ahead. Go well, no,
0: I was going to say, I appreciate you, you said, you know, I appreciate you kind of giving both sides to it. Because like you said, they are, you know, these farmers, they're neighbors. They, they live in the yeah. area. So, yeah. so their voice deserves to be heard too. You know, right. we don't right. really want to bash them, but it's like, hey, maybe the process needs to be tweaked a little bit. Maybe right. it needs to be tweaked. You know, there, there,
1: are, there are things they can do right. right. Let's put it that way. And, and some, you know, significant for- portion of them do it
0: right. Yeah.
1: And they want to, I mean, they're responsible guys, you know, I've met some number of these guys and uh, I can't say that I've ever met one that I thought was a real asshole. Uh, yeah. You know, in the sense of, you know, fuck you, I'm going to do anything I want.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, yeah. And, and most of them are saying, look, I live here. I don't want to smell that shit any more than you do. I don't want it spilling out on the ground or getting into the, the creeks and rivers. I want to be a responsible producer um, you know, I've been farming all my life, blah, 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 and that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for that.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, it's easy job now, the
1: it. swine industry attracted a lot of investors back in the 90s because the, the profit margins were huge. And so a lot of these operations were owned by investors, not by family farmers. The whole notion that mm. this is all about family farming is only partly correct. And the investors are, you know, lawyers, doctors, politicians, people like that. All they care about is the money.
0: Yeah, I've read and about so, the, uh, you know, the, the Smithfield CEO or, or, or president. He doesn't seem like yeah. the most likable
1: guy. Um, uh, <laughs> you don't have to these are that, business guys, yeah. you know, at, at the money level, not at the operational level. The right. operational people, the guys who actually do the work, you know, who run these operations uh you know i i have an easy time talking to them sure they're technical guys you know they got to know their stuff and the money part you know that's what they're in it for but you know they're the ones holding the mortgages too yeah they're the guys who owe money uh they're not the rich investors they're the guys actually you know putting it on the line so Um, you know, I, I, I find, you know, I, I tend to like those guys. I mean, I can deal with them. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, we don't always see eye to eye about things, but we can talk to each other and, and communicate and make sense with each other,
0: especially when they find out you're not the devil. Like that one guy. Yeah, that's right.
1: I'm not (laughs) the devil. I'm a scientist. You know, I, I, I have to look at everything as objectively as I can. Now, some of those operations, And probably still a few are are still like this. You know, they're run by scumbags. They're run by guys that don't give a rat's ass about anybody else's rights. All they want is maximum profit, meaning keep the costs of operating as low as you can uh, and so on. And some of that is by going cheap on your environmental stewardship. So, you know, you're always going to get some fraction, whatever it is, you know, 1% or 10%, I don't know. Uh, Who are jerks.
0: But that's enough to get attention, at least national attention. Oh, absolutely.
1: You know, 10% of 2,300 uh, operations is 230 of them, right? So if there's that many that are causing trouble, that's a lot.
0: Um, Well, did you find that Florence, uh, you know, we've all seen the pictures of of them overflowing, and I think some of those pictures were from previous hurricanes, but. The fact yep. still remains that a lot of them were breached. A lot of these lagoons were. Yeah. Um, you know, you know. I, I hear
1: different numbers. Right. Um, uh, the, the numbers that I've seen published in the newspapers and so on. You know, they could easily be underestimates, but yeah. they're far less than what we saw in the, the hurricanes of the 90s. Fran and Floyd being the two real bad ones. Uh, Floyd may have uh, compromised a couple hundred lagoons that was the biggest flood event we had up till that time and since then we've had Matthew and we've had Florence Mm -hmm. um uh, to some degree uh to a great degree it was that the flood water overtopped the lagoons the lagoons themselves didn't fail it was that the water around them rose up so high it got in the lagoon exactly yeah Yeah. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of chatter about, well, we should move them all out of the hundred year floodplain. And, and there has been some movement in that direction. Um, The hundred year floodplain buyout program they started after those hurricanes back in the nineties did buy out. I want to say 40 or 50 operations. It's voluntary. You know, I mean, this is somebody's property. If you decide you want to, Get bought out, okay? But there's no way to make it mandatory. The other thing is that the hundred-year floodplain is a, a ludicrous fiction. Uh, Floyd, sure. Matthew, and Florence were 500-year floods. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you know the the hundred-year flood line, if you want to call it that, you know, delineating where it's risky at that level, it's almost meaningless. You get enough rainfall and damn near anything can flood. So we're going to have to take a real hard look at real elevation, real flood risk, and, you know, what's likely to be coming down the pike. I mean, you know, we've had three storms in 20 years yeah. that were 500-year flood events or worse. What does that tell us? Right. Um, you know, y- you can try and target the the most low-lying operations but it is also a function of how much rainfall you get in that region. Um, Floyd flooded particularly the eastern part of the state. Matthew was a little bit farther west in terms of the main effect in flooding, and Florence was kind of in between mm-hmm. geographically. So, you know, some lagoons that, that may have flooded in Floyd didn't flood in the other two, and, and vice versa. So it's a little bit more complicated than just saying, "Oh, let's buy out all the ones in the hundred-year floodplain." Right.
0: And there's another
1: factor here. Um, I'm not a big fan of using public money to reduce the risk from misuse of private property. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, where's the where's the money come from to buy out these operations? Well, it comes from taxpayers. Yeah. And you know, so we're being paid or we're we're being, you know, billed for somebody else's decision to build something on their low lying property. And I understand, you know, flood insurance does the same thing and so on and so on. But if flooding is going to be more and more of a problem, I think we have a right to ask as taxpayers, is this a good use of our money? Right. Or should we just tell people, No, you can't that's the wrong place to do that don't do it and we're not going to bail you out yeah that may seem harsh but uh you know there's a virtually infinite amount of risk out there when you start talking about storms like these
0: yeah seriously where
1: do we draw a line
0: when it seems like the you know the the, the you know the people who bankroll these farms aren't going to be the ones going to be able to pay it it's not going to be smithfield it's not going to be those even though they have
1: yeah yeah so. yeah they they lay yeah. off the risk. I mean, yeah. the operations themselves, uh, I mean, Smithfield owns a couple hundred operations out of you know somewhere over twenty three hundred. So they own about ten percent of them themselves. The rest are contractors, and you know, you sign a contract with Smithfield to raise their hogs and bring their hogs to market to mm-hmm. slaughter when you got them big enough. And the risk, And the cost are on you, the producer. You put up the capital to build the actual operation. You are responsible for the waste. And if your herd doesn't grow, if if they get sick, uh, if if you don't feed them properly, that's your problem. So it's a business model in part that lays off a lot of the risk on individuals or, you know, operators, we'll put it that way. I, of I try to avoid the use of the term farming. You know, I've, I've said producer and stuff like that. This is not really farming. Mm-hmm. Farming uses the land to grow things. These concentrated animal feeding operations use the land only for waste disposal. So that's a difference.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: Not everyone may like me saying that, but you know, I, I don't call them farmers. Um, my wife's Uh, now deceased uncle was a pig farmer he had a small herd 50 or 60 animals he fed them based on what he raised on his farm you know whatever extra stuff he had and he'd slaughter one or two a week and and peddle the meat Mm -hmm. now that's farming yeah the landscape is supporting the animal production right the way it's done now that's not true
0: yeah, we, we actually have a friend, a close friend of ours who is a, a, a true hog farmer, a true pig farmer in mm-hmm. that sense that you just yep. mentioned. And it's like, yep. you know, apparently yep. it's a very beautiful ecosystem. Apparently, You know, we've actually had um, some of the pork and it's it's just, it's incredible. You right. can't even touch it with anything else. It, it's incredible. That's right. So you can it, taste it, the it, difference it's, for
1: sure. it, com- Yeah, that's right. It's a completely different approach. Yeah. You know, the traditional approach generated what you had. Now, you know, there were drawbacks to the traditional way you know, we no longer worry about trichinosis when we eat pork. Uh, you let the animals run free, and they're going to pick up parasites and things like trichinosis. Uh, but you know, it's it's not the same product, and it's not the same method.
0: Well, um, so kind of switching gears real quick because uh, sure. I do want to touch on all the issues. But the you yep. know, coal ash is another one. Um, yep, that's that's you know within yeah. a few miles from Wilmington. Um, and, and that's <laughs> a particularly dumb,
1: frightening one as Corporate well. dumb bunnies, yeah. What's that? Corporate dumb bunnies. Um, <laughs> you know, there've been several catastrophic coal ash spills in the United States. I think uh, the big one at TVA, those 2 billion tons of the stuff got loose. Oh
0: my God.
1: I think that's the right number and the right unit. Uh, in 2009, And there have been a couple others, you know, that that drew some attention. Um, And when Duke Power bought uh, Progress Energy, when was that, back in 2012, I think, I'm wondering, did, did their due diligence people actually do their jobs? Because when Duke Power bought Progress Energy's plants, they bought their coal ash piles, too and did any of their people say hey there's a liability problem here you're you're purchasing the liability for managing tens of millions of tons of coal
0: ash and coal ash is is like we talked about earlier it's it's you know residue from power plants right that has really high amounts of heavy metals
1: uh yeah it can Uh, you know coal ash is a mixture of a uh, variety of products that come out of uh, coal combustion chambers. Okay. Um, what we call bottom ash uh, is, is, the, is the residue left over after you burn the coal. That's, that's where your metals are. Uh, coal is a rock. It contains all kinds of, of elements. Um, and when, when you take uh, one of those big coal burners offline to clean it out, Typically, they're going to remove not only the bottom ash and all of that stuff left over from all that combustion. They're also going to take out the fly ash. Fly ash is stuff that actually vaporizes during the coal combustion process and condenses again into solid particles uh, in the smokestack. And most of that is silica. Uh, By and large, that kind of ash, that kind of residue, the fly ash they call it, Uh, is relatively harmless, Uh, but it's all mixed together. And so what you wind up with is a mixture of fly ash, bottom ash, and whatever other residues build up in the combustion chambers and smokestacks. Uh, You've probably also got some crud from the, um, the particle capture units they put on top of the smokestacks. So you have a mixture of stuff. And that mixture uh, contains, a, you know, a, a diverse assemblage of actual particles. Some of it's got a lot of metals associated with it. Some of it doesn't. The metals that you get include, as you mentioned, arsenic, uh, selenium. The mercury is usually fairly volatile. That actually cooks off of uh, the coal and vaporizes into elemental mercury, goes up in the air. Now they have, again treatment systems to remove that what they do with it i don't know Mm. Uh, but you've got other metals in there as well Uh, you've got some lead you've got chromium you've got cadmium you've got a whole bunch of things depends on the source of the coal and so then you take the coal ash and uh back in the day uh when it was carolina power and light uh over at the sutton plant there uh, initially they put that coal ash in an unlined lagoon. It was just a hole in the ground full of water, and they dumped the coal ash in there. Well, uh, that, that lagoon was leaching all kinds of metals, and the one that became prominent was selenium. Uh, there's been some number of studies done on the selenium effects on the fish in Sutton yeah. Lake, and it's not good. Um, subsequently, they began to use lined pits, they still retained the old unlined pit. I think they have three uh, wet pits for coal ash and one was unlined and two were lined. Um, But then they got into trouble with the Dan River spill. Uh, I think that was 2014. There was a lot of attention focused on this issue of coal ash management. And at that point, Duke Power owned it all. They had bought Uh, Progress Energy, which had been CP&L. And so Duke owned everything. Duke owned all the coal ash and all the liability. And, and, you know, of course, Governor McCrory was a former Duke executive uh, back when. And so, you know, there were some deals made. There were lawsuits and so forth. They knew they had a problem. They knew it was going to be expensive. And again, you know, why did you buy that big mess? When you did. I mean, anybody who does due diligence in purchasing a big company knows you ask the question what are the liabilities for these guys?
0: Even purchasing a house, you know?
1: Yeah, right. When you get into something like that. Yeah, you you go buy a house, you want to find out there's dead bodies in the backyard or (laughs) a leaking
0: oil tank or
1: any of that kind of crap. And, you know, you ask those questions. The coal ash was not a secret. Everyone knew about coal ash right. and the spills by that time. I think they probably figured, oh, we'll just use politics to get out from under it. Well, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So what they've had to do instead, um, it's, it's kind of a compromise. The, the state clamped down on them finally. And the deal is with Sutton was that they had about 10 million tons of coal ash. They were going to truck or, or Uh, actually use railroad cars to carry about 3 million tons of it up to Chatham County. And then they're going to pile the rest up uh, in a dry pile system at Sutton Sutton Plant. So the idea was to dig out the coal ash from those ponds, uh, carry 30% of it away altogether, and the other 70% uh, would then be piled up, covered with a liner, and so forth and so on. Well, they weren't done with that when Florence hit.
0: Oh. Um,
1: I'm not sure, you know, which pit got dug out first. I don't know the details, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, dude, um, closure. Uh, I'm on the board of directors for Cape Fear River Watch. Yes. And River Watch was one of the entities, uh, part of the Waterkeepers Alliance, that uh, filed suit against. Um, Duke Energy, over their coal ash management, and it was one of those uh, lawsuits and various actions by the state that led to the the practice of moving that coal ash to someplace safer. We warned them that the Sutton plant, uh, being where it was and as low-lying as it is, was vulnerable to flooding during a hurricane. We told them that back when. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, and that didn't
0: um, they did nothing about didn't it.
1: produce a beneficial result. Right. Let's put it that way. Uh, How did they
0: react when you told them? Did, did they say that uh, they were not about it? Did they?
1: No, they felt that it was safe to pile the stuff up where they piled so, it up. So they ignored you. Uh, yeah, basically. But I remember that our people, I mean, I was not involved directly in the negotiations, but our people told them this facility, this location, uh, are vulnerable to flooding from hurricanes. We had had a very big flood from Floyd uh, at that time. Matthew came after all this transpired. Uh, But the Cape Fear River had flooded pretty severely. Now, it had not flooded the Sutton plant the way that Florence did. Um, I don't think anyone expected that, but the river was uh, the highest ever. I've, I've actually uh, had one of my classes, my limnology class, uh, calculate the total discharge of water uh, through the Cape Fear River at Lock and Dam 1 for each of the last seven hurricanes. And Florence was by far the big one. Uh, we calculated that the event uh, had half a trillion gallons of water flow past Lock and Dam 1. And it's still, I mean, we're still seeing some flow, so that's an underestimate.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's uh, far and away the biggest flood event that, that we've ever seen in the Cape Fear River.
0: Right.
1: So, you know, yeah, it was unexpected in the sense that, you know, prior to that, you could say, well, Sutton's never flooded before. Well, hell, Sutton flooded this time. Not only the coal ash, pits get overwashed and the lake and all that, the plant itself was flooded. Oh, wow! It had to be shut down because they had water uh, in the transmission yard, is the way they put it. They had to shut the whole thing down. They were relying on the nuclear plant down in Brunswick to provide power. Wow. And before the hurricane, they shut down the nuclear plant because they were worried about hurricane damage to that.
0: Okay. Yeah. So they,
1: they had to switch which plant is generating power wow. because of the actual reality of the storm? Wow. So,
0: yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, we were actually out of town for a lot. Of, we had to go up for a while, and then we kind of stayed away for a lot. Of, right. The, but, right. You know, yeah. No, they
1: told lot. us they were, see the, the the nuclear power plant in Brunswick and um, down in Southport is a, is a very old plant. It was designed and built in the late <laughs> 70s. Came online long about 1980. And what we call the Mark 1 reactors,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the same reactors that uh, the Fukushima power plants had in uh, Japan.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: So if the power goes yeah. out and the backup generators fail, the reactor blows up. Oof. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a new process. Yeah, they've taken some measures to make it less likely. Uh, you know, we're not going to, we're not in an earthquake zone, we're not going to get tsunamis, but. They were worried about the nuke plant security, and so they shut them down before Florence uh, just to be on the safe side. They kept the Sutton plant running, and, you know, a week or ten days into it, the Sutton plant was flooded out and had to stop. And at that point, they'd brought the nuclear plant back up. Well, it's Uh, just another
0: thing for me to be worried about it. (laughs) Yeah, right.
1: Well, you know, they kind of sort of know what they're doing.
0: Yeah. You know, we we had
1: power, you know, if you had – the wires connected to your house, you had power. So, yeah. so it wasn't like the whole town went without electricity. But,
0: well, um,
1: you know, it it exemplifies the kind of risk that is inevitable when you live this close to the coastline. It's all low-lying. You're yeah, going to have to yeah. deal with the possibility of flooding, possibility of, of power outages, things like that. Yeah. And so, you know, That's you just have that. to be resilient in your planning and in your actual practices
0: so with with that in mind let's let's move to the third and last at least sure. you know issue that i'm aware of and, and this is the one i've seen you with the most research um, yeah yeah it's yeah and this is uh and, and i'll let you explain you know it for the most part but I've, uh, you know this is um Chem-X, uh which is a very yep. dangerous Gen-X. chemical anyways um but yeah, it's, you know, it's seemingly similar to a lot of compounds that have, that are high, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. high risks of, you know, kidney cancer, testicular cancer, birth defects, right, right. birth weights, uh, you, know, um, you know, talk about that a little bit, uh, how that's sure. progressed. I know that's changed from C8 uh, um, to. Uh, right. Those...
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, some of the history here. DuPont. Uh, began making uh, C8, uh, perfluorooctanoic acid, back in 1951. And they used it as a processing aid in the manufacture of Teflon. So it's right. not actually Teflon itself. It's, um,
0: uh, it's like a manufacturer. When they reason. call it a
1: processing aid, yeah. uh, I think it's more than a catalyst. I think it's a precursor of some kind. But in any event, they were using that, and they began to find out uh, that there were problems with it. Um, uh, I think it was along about 2001 that they figured out that they were having trouble at the Parkersburg, West Virginia plant. Right. Um, they began producing it um, up at, at Fayetteville Works, and this was DuPont. Um, chemoirs split off from DuPont in 2015. Okay. So Chemoirs never produced C8 themselves. Uh, it was the DuPont facility that did it.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, DuPont still has a, a, a presence on that campus, but ChemWars is a separate
0: company now. When was uh, intru- or excuse me, when was um, uh, ChemX introduced? Was it 2004? Uh, GenX, GenX. Gen-X. I'm sorry. Yeah. Was it 2004? Um, they
1: they applied for a permit to produce GenX in 2009. When I say a permit, they went to the EPA for. Permission to produce this product under the Toxic Substances Control Act, TOSCA, we call it, TSCA. And one of the things that's confused people a lot in this issue is uh, which law and which permitting uh, apply here. Um, the permit to produce is one thing. You know, you can't just produce a chemical and market it without a safety evaluation, that sort of thing. Otherwise, we'd have people manufacturing nerve gas and selling it. Um, You know, there are things that you're not going to be allowed to produce because they're so dangerous. So Tosca is a way of getting a hold of anything that's potentially toxic before it's released to the public as a product. So they got permission to produce uh, Gen X, uh, perfluoro 2 propionic acid. Uh, as uh, a replacement for PFOA, the C8 compound. Um, The EPA reached an agreement in 2006 with DuPont and other fluorochemical manufacturers to phase out production of of C8 PFOA because of increasing health concerns. So uh, DuPont came up with Gen X as a replacement. Now, they originally discovered that compound in 1963. And, you know, the the chemical companies discover compounds and they characterize them and they put them up on a shelf until there's some commercial need for them, Uh, you know, some reason to produce them commercially. But they have a lot more compounds in their library or their their stocks uh, than they actually produce. You know, for every hundred compounds they discover uh, or make accidentally or whatever, maybe one will get actually marketed.
0: Hmm. How do they choose? So, what, and, like which one uh, they it are.
1: depends on the properties of the chemical. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that, that I, I tell people all the time is that companies like DuPont, and it's now Dow DuPont, the big chemical companies, they hire the best chemists in the world, and their job is to know everything they possibly can about those compounds. So they know more about this stuff than anybody else. Now, in terms of safety, that may or may not be true. But in terms of the basic chemical properties, what it will do, what it won't do, uh, how it reacts with other things, how you can use it uh, in a production process, they know that stuff intimately. So, you know, there's no ignorance there. You know, these guys are the best out there. So they knew about Gen X starting back in 1963. Mm -hmm. And they finally came around to realizing, hey, we need a compound to replace C8 in our uh, Teflon manufacturing processes. And they hit on this particular compound. Um, The idea was that it, uh, according to them, has a favorable toxicological profile, which I think is probably a bunch of, you know, crock of shit. But
0: yeah, they've been lying uh, to us. We just don't know.
1: Okay, we know a lot less about it than we know about PFOA. The problem with PFOA is that what we learned about it was after the fact uh, of the stuff being produced and distributed very widely.
0: Right.
1: And it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Um, you know, an EPA belatedly got a hold of them again, you know, had this agreement in 2006 to phase out production. Well, they didn't stop producing the stuff until uh, 2014, 2013, okay. something that's like that. Of, so it took a long thing. time to phase it out. So they began producing Gen X. Now, that was not the problem because the permission to produce it under Tosca specified that it must not be released to the environment. Now, it was like a 99% capture or something like that. They specified that the workers in the production facility had to wear full body suits, respirators, right. gloves, the whole nine yards to protect them. Um, Gen X this this uh, porfluoro2 propoxypropanoic acid is uh, at, in concentrated form in other words product scale form extremely dangerous um, it, it will tear you up. I mean if you wow. inhale that compound uh, and I'm talking about at the production scale of, of concentration right, right. you know you're there in the in the shop making it. Yeah. If you inhale that stuff, you'll die. It'll tear your lungs apart. If you get it on your skin, it will burn a hole through it. Uh, These are extremely strong organic acids. So they're very dangerous, and that's why these precautions are required. Now, the environmental release of this stuff was actually separate from the production of it. Um, It turns out that Gen X is also a byproduct of some of the other manufacturing processes they had going on there, starting in about 1980. And because it was a byproduct, they didn't have to have Tosca permission to produce it. Now, the next point is the one where I think people crash and burn. People seem to have the impression that if they had Tosca permission to produce, that that somehow allowed the company then legally to allow it to discharge into the Cape Fear River. That is not correct. Yeah, uh, i bumped into this uh, repeatedly over the last 18 months or so. It's not correct. The Clean Water Act applies to discharges into the river. And the Clean Water Act says that any discharge of any compound must be permitted. That is, it has to have a permit. To get a permit to do that, you need to disclose the presence of that compound or a set of compounds in your proposed discharge. And uh, if you have reason to believe that the stuff is toxic, which is certainly the case, there's a threshold above which you must report it. The threshold for Mm. stuff that's known to be toxic is 100 micrograms per liter. If you know that that stuff's going to be present in your discharge above that level, you must disclose it in your permit application. DuPont never disclosed the presence of any perfluorinated compounds in their discharge, with the sole exception uh, fairly late in the game of PFOA. Hmm. I've looked at their permits going back into the late 90s, and there is no mention of any of those compounds ever in any of their permit applications or their permits as issued. Yeah, they never disclosed that to the state, and they should have.
0: What is the amount that you've tested? Like, have you has it been close to the amount that would need would be needed to? Oh, yeah. Um, when, when,
1: when you look at uh, the published studies, uh, the one that Detlef Canopy was the senior, well he was the last author, but he was the senior guy. Uh, it, it's Sun et al., uh, published in 2016. Um, that paper does the actual calculation of the discharge quantity. And when you do the math on their, their discharge volume and come up with a concentration number, uh, for Gen X alone, it's well above that mandatory disclosure oh, wow. level. Yeah, well above. I mean, we're not talking about a little fuzz. We're talking about definitely.
0: Like two They times should have disclosed it. Three, yeah. how, how, much, how much above? Was it uh, on
1: the order of milligram per liter. I mean, it varied from day to day. It's quite variable.
0: Yeah.
1: But it's a byproduct, see? Now, they had to know that it was in there. I refuse to believe that they're dumb enough that they didn't know what their processes were producing. They knew very well that not only that compound, but a whole host of others, many of them well above the reporting requirement levels, were present in their discharge. And they did not disclose that.
0: My view of that that is that that
1: it's absolutely a violation of the Clean Water Act every time they applied for a permit hmm. it's inconceivable to me that those chemists would not have known that
0: yeah especially since they like you mentioned earlier they know everything i mean they develop yeah these... they're the
1: best chemists out there wow. these are the top people in the business they're not idiots yeah you know i took organic chemistry as a biology major and you know, I can dimly glimpse what a really, really good, highly trained organic chemist is capable of knowing.
0: Right.
1: And it's pretty thorough. I mean, they, they know every reaction that's possible. How do they optimize their production processes unless they know exactly what's going on? So is when you after? synthesize a chemical, you set up, uh, you know, a couple of reactants, that is precursor compounds, You create certain reaction conditions, temperature, pH, et cetera, et cetera, concentrations of things. You trigger the reaction, Mm -hmm. and you take a look at how much product you get. That's fundamental organic chemistry, right? And you optimize the production of the compound you want. You also know about side reactions, that produce other things you don't want. And so if you know that your reaction is generating a 30 or 50 or 70% yield, and 70% yield, by the way, is awfully big, you also know what other things are being produced. It's part of your job. Right. So there's no question that they knew what many of those byproducts would be. certainly the more important ones. And none of those were ever disclosed um i think that represents uh, a clear violation of the clean water act
0: is there anything happening uh, legally to them is there anything um i guess not um i
1: i am aware that the u.s attorney for the eastern district of north carolina opened an investigation and had a grand jury impaneled to look into this that was back in the summer of 2017 I have seen no indictments, um, no charges brought. Uh, Now, grand juries often take a long time, Um, and the state was involved in that too. The State Bureau of Investigation was involved. Um, I've heard nothing about any prosecutions. Um, Certainly the permitting agency, the, the Department of Environmental Quality, Uh, has been involved but they have not pursued the permitting issue i've had some uh, indirect conversations with some of those people and it is abundantly clear to me that they didn't want to go there Uh, i heard some of the sorriest excuses from them oh they told us they were producing gen x well duh it's a product um i mean one of the state officials, and I'm not going to name names now, but one of them sent us by email a copy of a product brochure for Gen X as a way of claiming that they had disclosed the presence of this stuff in their discharge, hmm. which is absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> yeah,
0: know? that doesn't seem like it's, it's really explaining, you know, like you're no. saying the parts per liter and the Right. Yeah. Yeah. Brochure.
1: Yeah. The Department of Environmental Quality. You know, I I, I know a fair number of those people. Uh, pre, you know, active and retired. Some of them are former students of mine. Uh, the agency has been completely captured by the legislature. Hmm. Wow. Uh We have a supermajority, and you know, we've had supermajorities of Democrats. Now we have one of Republicans. I don't think it's a matter of which party is the one that's in power. Mm -hmm. But supermajorities are immune to uh, correction. I mean, they can do anything they want. In this state, uh, a supermajority can override the governor's veto. Uh, They're so powerful that when they write a budget, they can cut an agency's budget out of vindictiveness, which they do. Um, I'm aware of at least one situation in which a state senator uh, who, of course, is up for re-election right now, not here in Wilmington, but not far away, had a division head in the department fired. And it's very easy to do. You uh, just tell the agency uh, bosses, uh, we're going to cut your budget all to hell unless you get rid of so and Yeah, of course,
0: yeah.
1: Boom, and a, it's done. So, you know, the message to the agency people is very clear, and I've seen this play out in real life. Don't Piss off the legislators. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Do exactly what they tell you to do, uh, as close as you can, anyway, and still do your job or appear to be doing your job, but don't poke the bear.
0: Right. We started talking about the people how in
1: charge are the legislators, not the agency. They are not in charge of this. They are not going to do anything that pisses off this legislature.
0: That's interesting. That's, so, interesting that's, that's
1: the they're... root of the problem. When you get down to enforcement, it's that uh, the legislature has such firm control over what the enforcement agency is going to do. It's not about funding, yeah. except that that's used as a threat. People say, oh, you should fund them properly. Well, if you can fire them at will, you know, because somebody pissed off some legislator, yeah. well, it doesn't matter how much money they have. So the only real solution is to get rid of the supermajority, which, you know, again, is a a political thing. But like I say, Democrat, Republican, uh, I've been here long enough to see both parties abuse their supermajority presence when they had
0: it. Yeah, that's good to make that distinction because it's, you know, I do get frustrated, you know, politics aside, I do get frustrated when people say it's this one side or this side, and it's it's really not – As far as it's,
1: you know, absolute power. A supermajority has absolute power. They can override the governor's veto at will. They can do damn near anything else they want. And no one can stop them. Um, This legislature happens to be a Republican supermajority. They've passed God knows how many laws that are blatantly unconstitutional. And some number of those have already been challenged and rejected by the courts. Some of them are in court now. Others are going to be in court. Uh, but they can do that. They can do damn near anything they want. Hmm. Um, and even if the courts throw it out, it's in effect for several years before they do. The okay. courts will catch up eventually.
0: Right. But yeah. the
1: legislature, in the meantime, can run the table the way they want.
0: Yeah, they have a head start for sure.
1: Yep. Well, they have yeah. total power, and total power corrupts.
0: So with, with and that's what these... you see. With all these issues, yeah, with all these issues we mentioned, um, what do you think is the worst? Um, what do you personally, like, I mean, you live in this area. Do you drink the water? Do you? Yeah. In, in yeah, the, I'm in
1: the city of Wilmington. I, you know, I drink the CFPUA water. So you drink uh, For town, a
0: while, right? last
1: summer in 2017, I stopped because when the Gen X story broke, I realized, oh, my gosh, I've been drinking this water. Right. And I'm going to stop and drink bottled water. Is and it bioaccumulates, they go- right?
0: It, it builds in your system. Allegedly.
1: Um, it depends. It looks like uh, Gen X does not bioaccumulate the way that PFOA did.
0: Okay.
1: Um, the PFOA is there, but it's at background levels. They stop producing it. It's extremely resilient chemically and biologically. It just doesn't break down. It's smeared all over the planet. Oh, wow. and, you know, very low concentrations, but it'll be decades before that stuff goes away.
0: Um,
1: Gen X, we don't know yet. It looks like the, the very first study with which I'm familiar, they did a study of um, the blood concentrations of people living near chemoirs. Mm-hmm. And this just came out a week or two ago. And they found no Gen X in their blood. They did find four other... Uh, perfluorinated compounds that are produced in pretty large quantities, uh, you know, as byproducts and released, but they didn't find any Gen X in their blood. Now, I'd, I'd like to see a lot more detail about that study. Um, Gen X, a lot of these compounds are strange. They don't load into fatty tissue the way that methylmercury does, the way that pesticides do. Uh, they don't build up in the fat. They have an affinity for proteins, and they might, therefore, stay in your blood, but they might also build up in your liver. They might build up in some of the other organs you mentioned, you
0: know, kidneys,
1: uh, ovaries, testes, and that sort of thing, because those are protein-rich and they're enzyme-rich. So they behave differently in the body than some of the traditional toxicants do. Uh, so, you know, what the blood results mean, I'm not sure. Right. Uh, that's the very first study with which I'm familiar. Uh, I know that another study's been done. They were supposed to release uh, the blood and urine specimen uh, analyses results uh, back in September, but, you know, we had a hurricane, and <laughs> yeah. I don't know if uh, those results have, have been released. Uh, they, I think they were going to be released privately to the people who uh, submitted samples uh, long before they were released publicly, I have not seen a public release though. That was the study that Jane Hoppen coordinated okay. out of NC State. Uh, they got 330 participants in that uh, in the Wilmington area, and they they sampled their home water systems back in November last year, and took blood and urine specimens as well. The analysis of the blood and urine required special techniques for extracting the stuff from those matrices, which is kind of complicated. Blood is gooey, uh, an awful lot of chemicals in there, and you got to you know, clean them up uh, before you can analyze the stuff you're looking for. Um, urine may be a little easier, but both of them present ana- uh, analytical challenges. Analyzing Gen X in water is hard enough. Yeah, you know, just regular old drinking water because most everything else has been stripped out. Analyzing it in blood or urine is a whole different ball game.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: Yeah, so they had some method development uh, problems they had to solve. Um, so I have not seen the results, but that's a much bigger study. The problem there is that they were sampling in November. Kemores had pretty much stopped discharging the stuff uh, by late August. So, you know, if it doesn't persist in your body for very long and the stuff is no longer being discharged at any measurable level, then you're not going to see it. Yeah. That doesn't mean it didn't do damage. If you're drinking this stuff every day, you're still exposed to it. You're just flushing it through your body. You know, it's like, uh, have you had an alcoholic drink today? Well, if you had one a couple hours ago, we wouldn't know, would right. we? Even if you were shit-faced drunk yeah. this morning. We might not know right, that yeah. this evening from a blood test, right? But the damage is done.
0: Yeah, like smoking cigarettes yeah. just because you're not smoking currently doesn't mean... Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: We, we can tell sometimes from the collateral damage, but the stuff itself has passed through, and you know it's gone the signal is indirect then you know so, with gen x we're not sure what indirect signal to look for
0: so it's definitely comforting that you drink the water because um, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was definitely a concern One of, um before i let you go and thank you for your time yep. but the last question i wanted to ask was like um you know bivalves in the area like oysters or mussels or yeah you know any any seafood or or um right you know marine life kind of uh, yep. um connecting the dots between you know you, you uh, two um fields of study do you eat yeah. uh, do you eat the 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 seafood in the area do you eat the yep oysters and i do great
1: um you know the commercial stuff uh those guys are pretty careful i mean we have areas that are closed for quite good reasons and other areas that are open because we know they're clean and the commercial guys um they know that if uh they try to sell contaminated seafood they're going to be out of business real fast yeah um i remember a story i have to i have to tell you this story anecdote from when i lived down in beaufort my graduate uh days um i heard about a situation where a batch of clams from Carteret county down east of beaufort they tag them you know so about where they come from okay Well, a bag of clams got sent up to a restaurant in New York, and people got sick from eating them. Well, we have a a seafood tracking system, and they tracked those contaminated (laughs) clams back to Beaufort, back to Carteret County, back to the packing house that, that put together that bag of clams. And the packing house knew who it was that brought those clams in. And they found out, you know, some local boy who screwed up uh, went clamming in a place that was closed for water quality reasons and basically, you know, sold a bunch of contaminated clams. And, you know, polite society would bring the guy up on charges. Well, uh, the other clammers in the community realized that this was an act that was going to put them all out of business. Of so they hauled him out in the woods. And worked them over with baseball bats. And I'm not shitting you. That's what happened.
0: And a they made the injustice. point,
1: don't you ever do this again, because you will put us out of work.
0: Right.
1: And we need the work.
0: <laughs>
1: These are people who are not wealthy, right? Yeah. You go dig clams for a living, it's because you can't do much else. Mm-hmm. It's hard work, and you don't get paid well. And they were not about to let one Yahoo ruin it for him. So, yeah. you know, in the sense that local seafood is produced by people who understand the risks of screwing up and who get the message that you better do it right. I do trust that seafood. My son runs a restaurant and he buys local seafood oh, whenever he gets the chance. And again, he knows his suppliers. They know their suppliers. Um, I have had um, stuff that I've harvested myself, you know, as a recreational guy, you know, um, and i've I've never been sick from seafood here. Oh, I am careful. <laughs> yeah. If the area is closed, I don't shellfish there. I've called the cops on people I saw shellfishing in closed areas because again, you know you're you're putting other people at risk.
0: What you even if you're gonna like?
1: eat those things yourself, you know, do you have a right to be a dumbass and make other people sick? No, you don't.
0: What do you um? So, what do you what do you fish for when you're shellfish? What do you go for? Um, I've had
1: hard clams. Uh, actually, not long ago, uh, one of my grad students is doing some research in the estuary, uh, Masonborough Sound, and I noticed that there were a lot of clams out there. And he yeah. brought me a whole bucket of them, and we ate them, and they were great.
0: I've done a little bit of oyster um, farming myself, and um, up in the Outer yep. Banks. Uh, and it was okay. a blast. Yeah. It was a great experience. Uh, yeah. It's one of the best horses oh, yeah. I've ever had. So in a family- Right. Sandwich.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I know a couple guys in the business. And, you know, uh, you you well understand what's at risk when right. you, yeah, uh, you want clean water. And if it's not clean, you, you, you're going to be very careful. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Well, that's a great point. It's no, good to I hear like that local. you- drink the water. You, you know, we just moved to this area, yep. so we can't not eat the seafood. So it's good to know that that's you know, not a health yep. risk either. And, um, yeah, there, yeah. you know,
1: there, there are things I wouldn't do. I mean, I won't swim in the Cape Fear river. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but it, it's, it's not microbiologically safe to do that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. It doesn't even have to be during a flood. I just won't do it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's enough things in there. I just, Feel that's not, not a safe thing um, you know th- there are plenty of areas that are closed to shellfishing
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as I said you know when Gen X broke I stopped drinking the tap water until the numbers came way down right um, you know I, I try to be reasonable um, you know without being too obsessive about a tiny little bit of this or that
0: no. well perfect well yeah well that's very comforting yep. Um, at least that part, yep. you know, it's always good to end yeah. on a positive note. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's cool. very – I appreciate you taking the time out to explain to me sure. and explain to um, my readers and, and our listeners about, yep. um, you know, the issues of this area. I mean, it's, it's yep. very important stuff. Well, I'm an educator. It's part of my job.